Ever since Congress passed the No Child Left Behind Act of 2001, American policymakers have put significant effort into getting all students to meet minimum academic standards. But there's been no comparable effort to meet the unique needs of the nation's most gifted math students. And that's where the private sector appears to be stepping in. In the fall 2019 issue of Education Next, journalist Kathy Barron recounts how a growing number of non-governmental organizations have emerged to offer in-person and online courses designed for students who thrive on the challenge of mathematical puzzles, but can't find that challenge in their local public school. What can we learn from these programs, which now enroll more than 125,000 students annually? And how can we help more students, particularly those from low-income backgrounds, gain access to the same opportunities? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and I'm joined today by Joshua Zucker, a veteran instructor with Art of Problem Solving, a for-profit company that offers accredited online courses for high-ability math students. A former high school math teacher, Joshua has taught more than 50 courses for the program since 2007, and I'm delighted that he's agreed to share a bit about his experiences with us today. Joshua, welcome to the Ednext podcast. Thank you for having me. So a vignette in Kathy Barron's article describes you teaching pre-algebra to some 58 to 12-year-olds from your local coffee shop in Menlo Park, California. What led you down this unconventional career path as an educator? Well, there's a few things. One was that as a young student myself, there were opportunities I wanted to have to engage with more advanced mathematics. And that many years ago, there weren't so many options for me. So I'm really happy to be a part of creating more of those opportunities for kids today. Um, and I also really like the teaching philosophy that they have and the way that they want to get students thinking about mathematics as a creative endeavor and a problem-solving path, the way they put it right in their name, rather than as a collection of procedures to learn and algorithms to follow to get answers. And so that leads nicely into my next question, which is, how exactly does the math instruction you and your colleagues offer compare to what's available in the typical U.S. classroom? Is it just enabling students to take more advanced courses earlier than they would by following the standard sequence, or is it fundamentally different? I think it's, it's both. Um, there's a lot of students are very bored with the experience that they have in traditional classrooms. They want more. They want it faster. They want it more challenging. They want to be pushed to think harder and discover more. So giving an opportunity for acceleration is a really useful thing that we do. But I think even more important is that I think our values are different than what you find in most classrooms. Um, particularly, there's a lot of value placed on strategic thinking and the sorts of problem-solving strategies that go beyond even the mathematics classroom. And also, we put a lot more value on mathematical communication. There's a lot of effort put into giving even these really young kids uh, problems that require them to express themselves and communicate about their thinking process and how they solve the problem. And 
giving them feedback, detailed feedback about both the mathematical content and the communication skills. And I think that's something that's neglected in a lot of math classrooms. Communication is left to the English teachers when, in fact, that kind of clear, logical communication is maybe easier to teach through mathematics where we have these clear signposts of what is sufficiently rigorous thinking and we can really evaluate whether students are communicating at that level of rigor. Now, while the course you're teaching is online, the interface described in the article is decidedly low tech with no audio or video, just a screen that enables you to post problems, offer instructions and hints, and then provide guidance to teaching assistants who support students needing special attention. What are the advantages of that low tech approach? Yeah, I think a lot of online classes feels like the goal is to try to replicate what it's like to have everybody in the same room together as closely as we can, which turns out not to be very closely and doesn't really give that many of those advantages. And I feel like the approach that Art of Problem Solving takes does the opposite, which is what can we do to take advantage of the fact that we're not all sitting in the same room? So by not using audio and video, kids can be in all kinds of different places. They could get a little bit behind. They could be rushing ahead to go further with the problem. They could be asking a question about something they're stuck at. And having all 50 kids in 50 different places would be impossible if they're all watching a video or you know, seeing the conversation happening right in front of them. But with the, the text interface, they can scroll back up. They can be studying one line that they really need to think about that they don't quite understand. They could be asking a question and getting individual help. They can be going beyond, and I can be asking some extra questions about how they got that answer or what did they think of their approach or do they think their way of doing it is better than the way that I'm suggesting. And all of these things can be going on at the same time, which is pretty overwhelming as an instructor until you get a few years of experience working in this kind of environment, but it, it really takes advantage of the fact that we're not in the same place. And in particular, I think there's the tendency to ask a question in a math classroom, and the same handful of kids always will raise their hand right away, and everybody else will be like, oh, well, I guess I shouldn't bother trying to figure that out because they're just going to call on one of these kids who gets an answer really fast. Here, we can have... 20 of the 50 kids shouting out an answer to the problem, metaphorically speaking, and the other kids don't even know that that's happened yet because only the instructors are seeing the comments that the kids are making. And depending on the situation, I think that the tricky part of my job in this classroom is controlling that pacing of how long do I wait? I don't want those faster kids to be getting bored. I don't want the slower kids to be giving up and not bothering to think about the problem because they see somebody rushing ahead. But I have the ability in this kind of environment to orchestrate that and control what people see when about what the other students' work is looking like. So I think it's incredibly useful to be kind of keeping them each in their own little bubble a lot of the time and then just periodically bringing them all back together about okay, so here's the next idea that we're going to look at. Now we can see, I can pass along the messages 
you know, here's 10 kids who have thought of this next step. Great job. And then now what about this? And then give some think time again. Art of Problem Solving now operates some 200 online courses a year that attract some 15,000 students across the world. It's opened brick and mortar classrooms in eight states that already serve 4,200 students. And it's just one of several organizations mentioned in the article that are emerging to, to meet this demand. What do you think explains the strong demand for high-end math instruction? How much of it is parents looking to pad students' college resumes and ensure that they'll earn high scores on college entrance exams? And how much is something else? Yeah, I think there certainly is a little bit of that. I feel like we pretty quickly can identify those kids because especially in our problem-solving type environment, but also in a lot of the in-person math circles and so on, you can see the kids who are just there to fill a chair because their parents are telling them they have to be there. And that's the minority of the kids. It's not a big fraction. Most of them are there because they have a passion. They have a thirst that they're not getting filled in other places. Classrooms don't provide enough challenge for a lot of kids. And we really need to do more to change that, to give them things that really challenge them. And it's just not happening often enough. One of the things I was intrigued to learn from Barron's article was that in 2015, the United States won the International Mathematical Olympiad for the first time in 21 years, and then it won again in 2016 and in 2018. Amazingly, all 16 students on those three teams had enrolled in Art of Problem Solving courses and taken more than 100 courses in total. What role do national and international competitions play in the education of high-ability math students? And what do you make of the fact that so many of our top competitors are participating in this one program? Uh, as a kid, I was myself at nearly, but not quite that level in the math competition scene. And certainly a lot of the reason that Art of Problem Solving came into existence was thinking about how do we serve the kids who have that interest and want to be successful in those kind of competitions. And 30 or 40 years ago, that almost entirely consisted of kids sitting in their rooms by themselves with books of really hard problems, struggling along and going and reading the solutions and practicing and hoping that they could figure out something better to do. And now Art of Problem Solving has hundreds of those kids every year coming through and doing training on these really hard problems where I often wonder if I'm really helping that much teaching the class because the kids provide so many of the great ideas. In some sense, a lot of the service we offer there is having the kids interacting with each other, bringing them into one place where they can share the experience of struggling with these problems. So I, you know, I think it's not a surprise that Art of Problem Solving sees these kids, that it is the community where these kids meet each other and work together. At the same time, I feel like that only reaches a certain category of kids. I'm certainly one of them. I'm ecstatic that this kind of thing exists. I still enjoy 
speed, timed competitions on hard problems. Um, so there's a huge category of students that get left out of that. And uh, particularly, I think that that's another way of introducing some gender bias into things in that boys are more likely to be excited by speed and competition and girls are much more likely to be excited by the way that you can collaborate on things rather than compete and that you can explore more deeply rather than trying to do things quickly. And so I think it's really important that we balance this kind of thing with other sorts of programs and events that aren't like the way it was when I was a kid where the only access to interesting mathematics was through competitions and that we give them pathways that involve more collaboration and less time pressure and uh, are just more inviting to students who have different preferences about what they might enjoy in a mathematics environment. In addition to your work with Art of Problem Solving, I believe you helped launch something known as the San Jose Math Circle, which is part of a national network of after-school and weekend enrichment programs. How does that organization and its work differ, uh, and, and, and what does it offer? Yeah, the Math Circle program grew out of some things that had been happening in Eastern Europe for a century or more. Um, and we started trying to replicate something here with the help of some Eastern Europeans who were uh, immigrants here and, and wanted to share that style. It is a little bit more collaborative. Some of the math circles are more competition-oriented in the same sense as of our problem-solving, trying to prepare students for the International Math Olympiad. Um, some of them are very much more about taking topics that students don't usually see in the classroom and exploring them much more deeply. One thing that they do have in common is that they bring mathematicians into contact with students. You hopefully get some of the stereotypes about what a mathematician looks like dispelled a little bit by having some more personal contact. And then once that program started in uh, 1998, I was involved pretty early in that uh, after a whole collection of us in the San Francisco area were, uh, were there at the, the start. But what grew out of that after a little while was the recognition that we don't just want these programs to serve this category of student and that we need to manage things in some different ways in order to be inviting to a wider range of students. And the San Jose Math Circle has continued for more than 20 years now serving a pretty similar and steadily growing population of students who are interested in that kind of thing. But many related programs have sprung up all over the place, um, such as just right up the road in San Francisco, where we'll go out into schools where, in general, the parents don't have the resources to find out about these programs, bring their students to them, get them involved, uh, and instead will show up at the school and do something after school to 
gives them a richer mathematical experience than what they see in the classroom. So there's the Math Circle program as, as it's grown into hundreds of these entities locally all over the country has really broadened the reach by building these different models of, is it going to be something on a university campus in the evening driven by parents who want more opportunity for their kids and kids who want more opportunity to learn versus some other programs that will be much more directly involved in going out to the schools, meeting the students where they are, showing them that there's more to mathematics than what they see in the classroom and maybe doing a little more of sparking that interest in the first place rather than feeding the thirst that the kids already have from their background with their schools and their parents. Well, that begins to get at one potential concern about the emergence of programs like Art of Problem Solving and Math Circles, which is that the students who enroll do tend to be affluent, white, and male. So how can we work to extend these enrichment opportunities to a broader range of students? Right. I mean, I think the article talked about a program that I have a huge amount of respect for, which is founded by Dan Saharapal called BEAM, Bridge to Excellence in Advanced Mathematics, I think is what the acronym stands for. And what he started out doing was going to Title I schools in New York City, identifying kids who had potential in really fascinating ways, essentially involving testing much more for persistence with difficult tasks than for success or good grades or skills, because he felt, I think, correctly that what would really predict their ability to succeed in these other kinds of environments was that persistence and that willingness to struggle with difficult things. Bringing those kids together for a summer program, using that to bridge both in the mathematical skills and content sense, and also in the cultural sense, how do kids from these schools become able to participate in this kind of community? And then in New York City, the one of the big goals was to get the kids to go to Bronx Science or Stuyvesant as high school kids and to be prepared to be really successful there, both mathematically and socially. And that program is growing quickly. They've started doing things in Los Angeles. So that's one kind of avenue for bringing in a more diverse crowd into these really elite programs, such as at those schools in New York City or in the uh, summer camps that are all over the country for kids that, like you say, are traditionally more affluent, tend to be male, tend to be white, or maybe uh, second or third generation immigrants from India or China or so forth. Um, and that's one kind of approach to that. Uh, another one that I mentioned a bit ago was the idea that math circles don't have to fit this one model, which is sort of where we started, but that there are other ways of taking a math circle to the students who might not otherwise have those opportunities and maybe generating that spark a little bit more in places where usually the students are left kind of abandoned. Here in the San Francisco area, we have 
many small school districts, not so many really big ones. And so some of the districts have tons of resources and very involved parents and so on, and others have very little. And so finding those schools and having us go to them is a way of starting to change that. And then uh, I've also been involved with the Julia Robinson Mathematics Festivals, which is another quickly growing program. And the festival environment is much more open. There's not competition. There's tables. Kids can go sit and work on activities and, again, see that this thing that's labeled as mathematics does not look anything like what they do in their traditional classrooms. And these kinds of events can also reach a much broader range of students. And we make a big effort to go out into schools and reach the kids where they are rather than hosting the event at places where it's going to be the kids of the involved parents who have the connections and the money and the resources to bring the kids to the event. So there's a lot of things that have started growing out of this math circles movement in order to broaden the reach to a much, much wider audience than what we saw back 20 years ago. So we're about out of time, but let me close the interview by asking that, you know, you're someone with experience as a high school math teacher. Given that experience, what do you see as the most important lesson that schools can learn from the success of organizations like Art of Problem Solving and Math Circles? Oh, that's a tough question. There's a lot of things that I would put pretty high on the list, but I think the biggest one is the recognition that mathematics is fundamentally a human activity, that it's about creativity just as much as writing a good essay is about creativity. There's some rules, there's some structure, but there's also exploration and individuality and different people's work is not going to look exactly the same. I think there's a lot of tendency in, in mathematics to focus on following procedures and getting answers. And to me, that's the part of mathematics that computers are better at than humans. So let's focus on the parts that humans are good at, at the creativity, at the communication, at these other sorts of things that we can do that a computer couldn't do. And I think along with that comes a different way of asking questions where they're really genuine questions. So many of the questions that we see in a mathematics classroom or a textbook are really just prompts. Here's what you're supposed to do. I'm going to pretend I'm asking you something, but I don't really care about you. I just care about you following the steps and getting the answer. And I want to ask questions about, well, what do you think? How did you approach that? What did you try here? Where these kinds of questions that we ask all the time in Art of Problem Solving are so much more inviting to students to say, hey, I want to know about your thinking. What's going on with you? How is your strategic approach going here? And so I'd, I'd really like to see a lot more of those kinds of questions in classrooms all over the country. My guest today has been Joshua Zucker, whose work as a math educator is featured in the new article, Serving the Math Whiz Kids, available now at educationnext.org. Joshua, thanks for being part of the podcast. 
thanks for giving me the opportunity and for the great article talking about so many wonderful programs. You've been listening to the Ednext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. While you're there, be sure to check out our archive and, especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.